This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia dean Today is Friday, November 12th. Coming up, we'll get a recap of what happened at the Jackson County Courthouse this week. We'll talk to KCUR reporters who sat in on the trial of a Kansas City police officer charged with manslaughter in a 2019 shooting, and the innocence hearing of a man imprisoned for a triple murder in the 70s. But first, some headlines. Republicans in the Kansas legislature say they've gathered enough signatures from lawmakers to call a special session later this month. They'll consider at least two measures aimed at fighting federal COVID-19 vaccine mandates. Jim McLean of the Kansas News Service reports. One bill would require Kansas employers to grant no-questions-asked exemptions to people who claim taking the vaccine would violate their sincerely held religious beliefs. A second would allow people fired for refusing the vaccine to collect unemployment benefits. The Kansas Chamber of Commerce, an organization usually in sync with Republican leaders, has raised concerns about both bills. Chamber President Alan Cobb says Kansas businesses should be free to set their own vaccination policies and calls the unemployment plan too costly. Despite those concerns, the legislature is expected to consider both measures when it convenes for an unprecedented special session on November 22nd. Students in the North Kansas City School District have gathered a petition with more than 900 signatures against the banning of books after two books were pulled from their high school libraries. A district spokesperson said it's reviewing the titles Fun Home and All Boys Aren't Blue. Both are coming-of-age stories written by queer authors that contain scenes depicting sex. Justin Short is a member of Kansas City's LGBTQ Commission. It's important that our kids have the option to learn about themselves if they feel they need to reach out for that type of education. And removing that education is a great disservice to our young people. The Northland Parents Association raised concerns about the two books at a previous school board meeting. A Missouri nonprofit is working on solving a pandemic shortage of school food by connecting schools directly with farms. Katie Nixon is a farmer and food systems director at the West Central Missouri Community Action Agency. She says one of the biggest challenges is communicating between farmers and buyers. Farmers are so busy. If you have one sort of discrepancy or miscommunication, like the relationship tends to just sort of fizzle out. So we need to help build up the infrastructure for the for the food system in order to help sustain that relationship. The group is helping local farms provide fruits and vegetables to six schools in Lee's Summit. Several schools in the area have said supply chain issues have led to a shortage of food for student meals. It's been a busy week at the Jackson County Courthouse. One case we've been tracking is the trial of Eric DeValconeer, a Kansas City police detective charged with involuntary manslaughter in the fatal 2019 shooting of Cameron Lamb. KCUR's Dan Margulies has been in the courtroom for that trial, and he's here to give us a recap. Hi, Dan. Hi, Noe. So Wednesday was the third and most recent day of the trial, and I know you've said it was a fairly dramatic one. What can you tell us about it? A DeValconeer, who's a 20-year veteran of the Kansas City Police Department, took the witness stand in his own defense and told the court that he and his detective partner were standing on either side of a pickup truck that of a pickup truck that Cameron Lamb was backing down into a basement garage the basement garage of his house, and that Lamb was not complying with his partner's commands to get out of the truck and put his hands up. Now, DeValconeer was standing uh, toward the passenger side of the truck near the front fender, 
and he said he saw Lamb reach with his left hand toward his waistband while leaning to his right and then raising a gun to his chest, at which point while he, DeValconeer, was yelling, he's got a gun, he's got a gun, uh, DeValconeer fired through the windshield, four shots altogether, two of which struck Lamb, one in the chest, one in the leg, fatally wounding him. DeValconeer's partner, whose name was Troy, whose name is Troy Schwamm, had testified earlier that he did not see a gun in uh, Lamb's hand, and he was standing on the driver's toward the driver's side of the truck, I should say. But he said he also believed that DeValconeer saved his life. So, what are prosecutors arguing in the case? So they are arguing, no mean that. DeValconeer and Schwamm should never have gone onto Lamb's property in the first place. Now, just let me remind you, the two were plainclothes officers working for the Violent Offender Squad, uh, which tries to stop violent crimes before they occur. And they happened to be in the neighborhood that day when another police detective, also a member of the squad, uh, saw a red pickup truck chasing a purple Mustang at very high rates of speed. Now, Lamb had gotten into an argument with his girlfriend earlier that day, and she had taken off in her purple Mustang, and he took off after her in his red pickup truck. And uh, Valconeer and his partner were alerted to this ongoing chase by a police helicopter that happened to be flying overhead which tracked the uh, pickup. It lost sight of the Mustang, but it tracked the pickup to Lamb's house at 41st and College Avenue. Uh, and both the Valconeer and Schwamm headed that way. Schwamm headed down the driveway to the back of the house where Lamb was backing up his pickup into the garage, as I said. And the Valconeer headed up the other side of the house. By then, however, the car chase had been over for quite a while. And prosecutors say that the two detectives didn't have a warrant nor probable cause to be on the property. And although prosecutors haven't explicitly said this, they have intimated that a gun found on the garage floor beneath Lamb's lifeless left arm, which was hanging out of the car window after he was the, the truck window after he was shot, was planted there by police. And they also brought out evidence that when Lamb's pockets were emptied at the morgue after his body was brought there, the contents included two bullets. But when police crime scene technicians initially turned out his pockets at the scene of the shooting, this was after he was pronounced dead, of course, no bullets were found. So the trial resumes today. What do you expect will happen next? Well, I expect the trial to wrap up today. I'm expecting the defense to put on maybe one or two witnesses, possibly an expert witness who will testify about when police are justified in using force. And maybe, this is just me speculating, the prosecution will put on a rebuttal witness or two. Then both sides will make their closing arguments. Now, this is a judge-tried case. DeValconeer has waived his right to a jury trial. And the judge here 
is the presiding judge of Jackson County, uh, J. Dale Youngs, and I expect Youngs will take the case under advisement, which means that it might be days or even weeks before we learn DeValconeer's fate. Dan Margulies covers legal issues for KCUR. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Nomi. Coming up, we'll talk to KCUR's Luke Martin about the latest developments in the innocence hearing of Kevin Strickland. UMB Private Wealth Management, a division of UMB Bank, takes the time to understand your history, goals, and priorities. UMB tailors financial planning services and resources to help you accumulate, preserve, and protect your wealth for whatever life throws your way. It's all about establishing a customized plan for you so you can focus on the important parts of life, like spending time with family and friends, pursuing your passions, or building a career. Feel confident about your future at UMB Private Wealth Management. Everything we do starts with you. Learn more at umb.com slash wealth hyphen management. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. The other major case we've been tracking at the Jackson County Courthouse is the innocence hearing of Kevin Strickland. You may remember him as a Kansas City man imprisoned 43 years for a crime that prosecutors now say he didn't commit. For three full days, Strickland's attorneys, the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office, and the Missouri Attorney General's Office presented their arguments about whether or not a judge should exonerate him. Witness testimony wrapped up on Wednesday, and KCUR's Luke Martin was there for all of it. Hi, Luke. Hey, Nomi. So Kevin Strickland's fate now lies in the hands of Judge James Welsh. Do we know when he might issue a ruling? We do not. Judge Welsh has heard all the testimony that he's going to hear. Uh, he's got all of the information and the evidence from the three legal teams that are involved here. Uh, but yeah, we don't know when he might issue a ruling. At the end of proceedings on Wednesday, Welsh told the courtroom uh, he would come to a decision, quote, in a timely fashion, end quote. Uh, but you know, he wasn't any more specific than that. Um, the other thing to know is that this case is kind of the first of its kind in Missouri. Uh, this summer, the legislature gave prosecutors a new ability to revisit cases like Strickland's. Um, and this is the first time that anyone has kind of been through that process. So there's no real precedent that we could refer to for any guidance there. One of the main points of contention in this hearing was whether an eyewitness and survivor of the original triple murder wanted to recant her testimony against Strickland. Prosecutor Jean Peters Baker called a handful of this eyewitness's friends and family to the stand. What did we hear from them? Yeah, that eyewitness, her name was Cynthia Douglas. She died in 2015. But we heard a lot of really emotional testimony this week from Douglas's friends and family. Um, they said that identifying Kevin Strickland really ate at Douglas's conscience. Um, Douglas's sister, Cecile Cookie Simmons, said that over the, the years, it haunted her. Uh, this idea that she had put Strickland behind bars for something he didn't do. We heard from multiple witnesses that Douglas told them she felt pressured and rushed by police at the time. Uh, and we heard that Douglas told friends and family that police wanted her to identify the wrong man uh, out of a police lineup. Um, we also heard some phone calls between Douglas and her then husband, 
who was in prison with Strickland for a time. Uh, and in those phone calls, Douglas did express a lot of hesitation about the idea of helping free Strickland. Uh, her husband at the time said that that was because she feared Strickland might have some animosity toward her, that he might want to get revenge. Other witnesses told the judge that Douglas said she was threatened by prosecutors at the time um, when she approached them about recanting. Uh, she told them that she was told she might be jailed for lying under oath uh, if she admitted that Strickland was innocent. Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt has said he thinks Strickland is guilty and that he got a fair trial back in 1979. What evidence is his office using to back that up? His attorneys have pointed out that one of Strickland's fingerprints was on the getaway vehicle, uh, even if none of Strickland's prints were on the shotgun used in the crime or if none, you know, none of Strickland's uh, prints were in the house where this crime occurred either. Um, but the attorney general's office has been very diligent also about pointing out inconsistencies in these witness stories about Cynthia Douglas. Um, you have to understand that this is a, a tragedy that Cynthia Douglas's social circle discussed many times over the years. And a lot of times those stories didn't always line up exactly. And so the AG has really seized on that to suggest that some of these people maybe shouldn't be believed by the court. Um, they've also argued that Douglas never really wanted to recant. They're using those phone calls that I mentioned between Douglas and her then husband as evidence that she didn't want to recant. Um, as for the witnesses who, who say that Douglas told them she wanted to recant all those years, the AG has basically said that that all amounts to hearsay and that the judge shouldn't consider it. Strickland was in the courtroom this week for the proceedings. What was that like? Yeah, Strickland was there in the courtroom. He was wearing his orange jumpsuit. He had one hand chained to his waist for the duration of the, of the hearing. Um, Strickland was also in a wheelchair. He has spinal stenosis and has for a little while now. Um, in the gallery, you had a lot of friends and families and supporters of Strickland. Um, that included people from the Kansas City Miracle of Innocence organization, uh, the National Organization of Exonerees. Luke Martin is a reporter covering race and culture for KCUR. Thanks, Luke. My pleasure. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. This podcast was produced by Rachel Bain and edited by Lisa Rodriguez. To read Dan and Luke's reporting on the two major cases at the Jackson County Courthouse this week, visit kcur.org, where you can also find our live stream. If you like our show, why not leave us a voicemail at 816-235-8930 with your thoughts, or write us a review on your favorite podcast app. On Monday, we'll take a deep dive into the meatpacking industry in Kansas. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.